Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blase Blah Film Chat. I know it's been a bit of time since my last film chat. The only thing I can say is that, you know, life has definitely been lifing for me. However, in the words of the late, great Curtis Mayfield, you know, I, we all just gotta keep keeping on. And, you know, I definitely am going to give my best efforts to continue with my passion of discussing Black filmmaking on this here podcast. I had planned to have a new episode out in time for Women's History Month. However, I missed that deadline. But just like Black History Month, you know, I realized I don't need an excuse to talk about Black women filmmakers. You know, um, our history isn't relegated to just one month. So I got the idea for this film chat because... It feels like there's been a surge of exciting filmmaking by black women over the past couple or few years. And that actually made it hard to choose a film for me, especially because in general, I don't review newly released films. I generally want to focus on films that have had their time in theaters or whatever platform it's initially released on and you know we've gotten to live with that film a bit and that's just because you know I don't want my analysis to take viewership away if that makes sense. I've observed even though I know this isn't a popular belief by many black film critics I've observed that oftentimes any critique of a film or a television project will turn potential viewers off. And, you know, for me, I don't want to do that. That's not my objective. And for me, I'm not even really here to critique, you know, these films that I um, review on this film chat but more give, you know, just a more critical analysis of the filmmaking techniques. So with that in mind, I knew that I had to go with this particular film because I've been thinking about it since the first time I saw it a few years ago. I actually started to review it for a film chat about a year ago but I think because it was just so raw I didn't quite know how to you know dissect it or even talk about it so I saved my notes from back then and just put it on my circle back to list and I finally felt like it was time to, you know, circle back to it. And it's so interesting because the film's four-year anniversary just passed 
just a couple months ago, um, having been released on March 9th, uh, 2019. So that was just perfect alignment for Women's uh, History Month, which is in March, or specifically um, a Black woman's history. So, you know, if this is just, I just feel like this is, you know, just a film that is just needs to be talked about. So anyways, with no further ado, the film that I am referring to is none other than Jezebel, which was written and directed by the talented Numa Perrier. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Forgive me if I am not. But what makes this film uh, debut by Mrs. Perrier so special to me is, you know, the fact that I followed her from her black and sexy TV days. So to see her, you know, break out on her own and become this budding film director is just so inspiring. And I actually went to this, I guess it was a, uh, I guess a, a sort of retrospective of her work maybe I think about three years ago and it was held at the Waco Theater in North Hollywood and several of her short films were shown and um, it was followed up by a Q&A with her and it was just very interesting. And it was also interesting to, you know, see the work that she's written and directed over the years leading up to where she is now in her career. And even in her earlier works, her distinctive filmmaking style is very evident. She has a very specific point of view and an aesthetic, which makes her work that much more exciting to watch in my opinion it's thought-provoking because it's different and raw and maybe a bit off kiltered in how she presents her characters but in a in a good way for instance she has a short film called judy a series of memories that's about her caretaking for her adoptive mother. And it focuses on her mother's battle with, I believe it was diabetes and her yearning for sugar. And there's this one unsettling shot I recall seeing where her mother is devouring jelly I believe like grape jelly out of the jar and it was just smeared all over her face and um her hands and it 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 would it kind of makes you wince at such an intimate look at this person's struggle but it was also just very powerful to, you know, 
be that vulnerable and able to depict something like that about a loved one. However, you know, that's what's so great about Numa. She isn't, she doesn't shy away from uncomfortable subject matter. And there is also another short film that she both wrote and directed at this particular screening or retrospective. And it's called Florida Water. And Numa, after, during the Q&A, you know, part of the program, she shared that she had been inspired by her journey of reuniting with her biological mother, who is a native of Haiti, when uh, creating this film. And Numa, she actually traveled to Haiti for, I believe she said, two weeks after the 2010 earthquake. So, you know, she was able to capture some footage of the devastation that, you know, was left in the earthquake's wake. But she also got a lot of footage of just, you know, showing, you know, the beautiful um, parts of the country as well. So the, the short film, it has footage of the characters driving through the streets. Um, we see, you know, a lot of rubble from the structure, the structures that were, you know, destroyed, including of the palace. I'm, I'm not sure if that was the presidential palace, but just those, that footage juxtaposed by shots of this group of women who were sitting in the back of this pickup truck, kind of basking in the sun and feeling, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, feeling the breeze going through the countryside of Haiti. It, it was very, just very striking imagery. I thought it was so creative for her to also take inspiration from a photograph, which she explained that I believe she had found it, um, and it was of her mother and her mother's sisters in Haiti. And in this photograph, they were all wearing red. And so Numa, she incorporated that uh, as a motif of the film by depicting the group of women in her film, her short film, as them all wearing red. And at one point, they're going through a sort of rites of passage, I guess. I guess a rites of passage into womanhood type of ceremony. I guess that's the best way um, to explain it. But it was just a very beautiful piece. And it was just so interesting how she was able to tie that into her family to make it also a personal piece. So that's just a kind of background into Numa Perrier's first instances of filmmaking, which leads me to her first feature film, Jezebel. From what I read, the film is based on the director's own 
life experience living in Las Vegas with her sister in the 90s. And at that time, she was working as a cam girl during the early days of the internet. You know, and I've read that the adult industry has always been an early adapter of technology. And they were one of the first industries to figure out how to monetize content using the internet. And this also brings to mind the fact that early cinema depicted sexual content and it was basically considered a novelty where these very short films were exhibited at fairs or carnivals. So several early cinematic films depicting women in provocative situations uh, for the time were those such as the the 1894 film Carmen Cita, named after a Spanish dancer. She's considered to be the first woman to appear in front of a Thomas Edison motion picture camera. The film uh, was only 21 seconds long, but considered very scandalous because Carmencita's legs and undergarments were shown as she danced and twirled for the camera. So Miss Carmencita, she really, you know, set it off for sexually liberated women in film. So turning back to the film Jezebel, our protagonist for this film is Tiffany. And this character is played by the actress named Tiffany Tennille, who will eventually choose the stage name of Jezebel. And just a quick note about Tiffany Tennille. She is not only an actress, but she's a writer and filmmaker as well. According to IMDb, her short film Albion Rose has won several awards and acknowledgments, including the Future of Film is Female Post-Production Grant. She was also a quarterfinalist in the 2023 Screencraft Short Film Screenplay Competition for her upcoming film A Woman's Body. Very impressive that she's so multi-talented. But back to the Tiffany Jezebel character. She's sort of what I would describe as a black girl misfit. And not in a negative way at all. But more of a non-conformist type of individual. Which I think is so refreshing to see on film. I think we're used to seeing cookie cutter images of black women who neatly fit into boxes. You know, we have the the kind of the around the way girl image, the or the trendy, sophisticated or hipster black woman. Um oftentimes we see the put together professional sister but it's not often that we see the off the beaten path black woman like Jezebel in this film. 
she sort of reminds me of the black girls that I grew up with in the valley here in Southern California. You know, around the 80s and 90s. These uh, certain girls, they didn't wear the traditional, you know, what would be described as urban fashion. They weren't trendy enough to wear the cross colors or Carl Kanai or, you know, what else would we wear? Guess. But oftentimes they shopped at the, the thrift store or Kmart or yard sales. I have in mind a very specific girl, just thinking back to my past. And maybe they grew up in a household where they couldn't keep up with the, you know, they weren't allowed to spend money on the latest fashion trends or go to the hair salon and, you know, every two weeks and get a press and curl or Maybe their parents or grandma or, you know, whoever were their guardian wasn't going to pay $60 for them to get their braids done. So this particular girl, she maybe have a kitchen press or, you know, learn how to do her own um, braids, which just, just weren't quite up to par with what everybody else was doing. And... This girl I'm picturing, maybe she, again, do her own braids, but do that thing where they leave the bang out and, you know, have that big tootie from the facts of life bump under. But, yes, the main character, or, I mean, in this instance, the protagonist, Jezebel, she just reminds me of those eccentric black valley girls from the 90s except for this film it takes place in las vegas but that's still you know that's still the west coast so i think probably the flavor that explains why the flavor is very similar but let's get into the meat and potatoes of this film chat And just a friendly reminder and warning, this entire podcast is a spoiler. So again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Here on the Blase Blah Film Chat, I analyze all aspects of filmmaking, breaking down the techniques scene by scene um, in order to highlight the skill of Black filmmakers. I think it helps us to learn and appreciate them so much more doing it this way so thus if if you haven't watched the film yet you may want to do so and then come back and listen if you feel like this episode may ruin the film for you so this film opens on a black screen with sounds of moaning and a woman seductively saying, stroke it faster, a card shows based on a true story and that this film takes place in Vegas, 1998. Cut to a shot of Sabrina, who is played by Numa Perrier. 
So she's actually has holding three hats for this film. She's an actress in it and also a writer and director. So Sabrina, she's lying on the bed, having phone sex, twirling the old school phone cord around her finger. And she's wearing, though, a somewhat modest um, slip. The colors of the linen are very retro, 70s-ish, lime green pillows and sheets. And there's light pouring into this room. Sabrina, she's a black woman, yet describing herself as a blonde. So I'm going to presume that she's presenting herself as being a white woman. And we see she's a phone sex operator. She's talking really dirty as she brings her customer to Climax. We cut from an overhead shot of Sabrina to a medium shot of Tiffany, her younger sister laying on the couch with the look of just exasperation on her face. It seems like she's been awoken by the sounds of her sister in the other room. She's under the covers sleeping on the couch in a dark lit living room. The contrast in the light from the prior scene is striking. There's like a blue filter that really shows off Tiffany's skin very nicely. Tiffany turns to look towards the opposite end of the couch and we cut to a quick shot showing a little girl sleeping unbothered at the other at the foot of the couch. Sabrina makes a climaxing sound finally and finishes with her customer. A quick cut of a shot when Tiffany shows that she's relieved it's over and closes her eyes to finally get some sleep. We then cut back to Sabrina and she matter-of-factly hangs up. We hear the dial tone from one of uh, you know those old school phones with the wire cords and she's kind of seductively playing with it and says next call. There's a quick cut to a black title card with the film's name, Jezebel. I like the abruptness of the title card here. This was a quick, intense kind of summation and introduction to what this film is all about. And also the use of a kind of short and, and these short and quick cuts between shots are used a lot in the film and I like the editing choice. It gives the film a unique pace. The next scene opens on a medium shot position between Tiffany who's preparing toast in the kitchen the next morning. Very smooth indication of a time lapse here. There's a quick cut to a shot of Sabrina sitting on the bed in her bedroom doing her daughter's hair. The camera is positioned right outside the doorway 
and Jezebel walks into the frame and asks Sabrina if she's going with her to visit their mother. Now this is an interesting shot because there is a sort of it's a it's a pillar in the middle of the frame which is connected to a counter or I guess bar area where above it is an opening that lets you see into the bedroom. The camera only slightly shifts as Tiffany enters the room and then walks to the furthest part of the frame to be positioned perfectly in the opening or cut out over the counter. This shot was framed nicely and it was a great use of the space. Instead of trying to position the camera inside the small room and having to move it around to get reaction shots from both actresses, we get all the coverage needed from a camera shot just outside the room. So Sabrina, she declines without even looking up from styling her daughter's hair with the, the excuse that, you know, someone needs to watch her daughter named Juju. So with the look of disappointment, Tiffany, she walks back out of the room and out of the shot. Moving on, the next shot, the camera is at ground level showing Tiffany's feet kicking, lightly kicking her brother, Dominique, who's played by Stefan Barrington. He's asleep on a pallet and she's trying to wake him up. The camera pans to an angle looking up at her and she tells him that, you know, he needs to watch Juju while they go visit their mother, her and Sabrina. With the camera still holding in the same position, pointed towards the front door, David, Sabrina's boyfriend, played by Bobby Field, walks in. He surveys things and, you know, he makes a comment about how Tiffany's, she's all moved in with all of her stuff, um, which is kind of all over the place. And he also looks down at Dom and asks, you know, how the floor feels. I really like the director and cinematographer's choices here in regards to the camera placement and movement between actors in this small one bedroom apartment. As a viewer, you get a sense of the tension and frustration of you know all of these uh, adults making do in this small space. And visually, it's exciting to watch these thoughtful camera movements and positioning. Like I've said in the past, when I see such intentional filmmaking, it puts me in this mindset of, okay, you know, now I'm watching a real film. The director understands film language. You know, the shots aren't random and rushed. And, you know, it's just, you know, I just love it, love it, love it. And also, David, him being a white man, I feel like adds another layer to this scene for me. Just the, the whole situ situation as a whole. Like, how dare he come in with this judgmental attitude towards this family who's, you know, obviously 
going through trials and tribulations with their mother in the hospital. But, you know, they're trying to stick together. So just the optics, you know, of this white dude kind of, you know, coming and making these judgments. It's kind of off-putting, but it just, it adds to the, the layers of the scene for me. Just that little slight racial dynamic. And it's not like he's in a position to help much. As we can deduce, he's in a relationship with Sabrina. As the camera follows him into her room, he makes himself comfortable on her bed and gives her daughter a snack. So just within the first few minutes, we see these two female characters that are so layered and nuanced and it makes you want to know more about their story and what's to come. So this is just an example of great screenwriting to me. The next scene is a couple quick shots of Sabrina and Tiffany riding the bus in silence. First, we uh, see a close-up side shot of their profiles, then a medium forward-facing shot. We cut to the Las Vegas Medical District sign position in the median of the road. So without any dialogue, we learn they are on their way to visit their mother. We then cut to a shot of David from behind preparing something in the kitchen back at the apartment. Similar to the shot of Tiffany earlier. We linger on the shot for several seconds with no dialogue before Tiffany and Sabrina walk into the shot. That linger was a good way to show a time pass, a time lapse from when they left earlier to visit the mother to after the visit. David looks back and he says, hey, to Sabrina who sits on the couch as we cut to an overhead shot of Tiffany who goes into the bathroom and sits on the toilet then we cut to a shot of Dominique in the bedroom, pretty much cupcaking on the telephone. Again, I like how we're left to read the emotions of the characters based on body language and actions and not solely relying on dialogue. I think this isn't done enough. You know, because you can convey so much more oftentimes with little to no words. And that's done very masterfully in this film. So Sabrina tells Dominique, you know, he has to get off the phone because she needs to work. That's what she, you know, that's her tool for working as a... um phone sex operator so David you know he asks Sabrina about her mother and she tells him that she's unable to talk because of the breathing tubes inserted Tiffany gathers herself enough to um, emerge from the bathroom and Dominique and Sabrina get into a short back and forth about her nasty time on the phone 
So Dominique and David decide to go out so they can avoid listening to Sabrina do her work. You can tell that Sabrina seems to be the only breadwinner in the house. Yet her brother has the nerve to be judgmental about how she makes her money. When he looks to be pretty able-bodied to work himself. And David is still unclear what he does at this point besides eating the baby's noodles and drinking beer. So moving on, we cut to a quick shot of a sign for budget suites. We now see where they are living in a weekly to monthly rental lodging. So I guess it's pretty much like a short-term hotel or motel that they're staying at. There's a voiceover of Sabrina greeting a new phone sex customer. Several plumes of clouds are floating wildly in the sky. Um, and it's it's in this uh, sped up effect. So we get that sense of time passage. This right here is just, it's a nice shot as well as great editing. For a lower budget film and, you know, a strict shooting schedule, Unique directing choices like this and in the previous scene work great. You don't feel like you're missing out on anything that's not shown. Next, we cut back to Tiffany lying on the couch, sleep in the middle of the night. She's awakened out of her sleep by the phone ringing. She answers it and it's someone uh, from the hospital alerting her that she needs to get there as soon as possible. She informs Sabrina that they need to get to the hospital and she jumps up. Cut to a close-up shot of David lighting his pipe. Great color composition between the orange background and his red reddish beard. Cut to a medium sized shot of Dominique sitting in contemplation on the couch as the door opens we cut to a shot of sabrina juju and tiffany entering through the front door with the shot lingering on tiffany as the sun is blaring behind her it's been several hours since they've been gone the silence and facial expression lets us know what has happened the camera is positioned in front of Tiffany and then pushes around her and she makes her way to the kitchen. The camera holds on a close-up behind her where she faces a bouquet of pink roses propped up behind the stove. This is a powerful shot. It felt like those flowers represented her mother. We cut to a shot of Sabrina sitting quietly or silently. Dominique finally breaks the silence, stating that their mom has died. He's very, you know, accusatory towards Sabrina and Tiffany for not calling from the hospital and replies saying that him and David were gone all night and, you know, she didn't know if they were home. 
And Tiffany chimes in and pretty much lets them know that they wouldn't have been able to call them anyway. And it, that's just a, this scene is just a reminder that back in the day before cell phones were very common and affordable, you missed out on a lot if you weren't by a phone at a proper time. So Dave, David decides to bring up the fact that the rent hasn't been paid, then starts to throw accusatory accusations towards Tiffany saying uh, she doesn't do anything around their apartment and she makes the brother uh, Dominique sleep on the floor and you know he says that they can't keep carrying her which is you know interesting because he doesn't work himself and it's really funny or interesting that he doesn't have a problem with Dominique who he's an adult too he doesn't have a problem with him not carrying his weight but he has this issue with um Sabrina's sister Tiffany not working so Tiffany she grabs some laundry and goes off to do that as a way to show she's contributing to the household Later, Tiffany and Sabrina have a conversation and Sabrina assures her that she doesn't have to leave, but she also shows her a job posting for internet models where nudity is required. Tiffany smiles in an awkward fashion, but is willing to pursue the job if she'll be able to continue to stay with Sabrina in this apartment or hotel, hotel room, hotel suite. That's what it is. This scene came off a little bit unrealistic to me. Um, Just, I guess, when it came to the acting choices in terms of emotions, I guess just because of the way Tiffany presents is very young and naive at this point, I would expect her to react a bit unsure and uncomfortable initially when, you know, her sister propositions her for the job. Also, Sabrina, she assures her that she doesn't have to talk dirty I guess this is supposed to be reassuring since Tiffany comes across as a bit of an introvert. But, you know, nudity is required on camera um, for this position. So for Tiffany to just kind of be very bright eyed and eager about, you know, going to apply for this job, it threw me off just a bit. However, on the other hand, when you think about it, she has been, you know, sitting up listening to her older sister, you know, just kind of be super freaky on the phones with her clients. So maybe she has been intrigued about working in the adult entertainment industry so I guess that you know could explain her mindset and 
you know, make this scene make a little bit more sense to me or just, you know, the acting make a little bit more sense. But, you know, continuing on um, in the scene, Sabrina, she pulls out a wig with long straight hair and places it over Tiffany's kind of youthful hairdo. You know, the hairdo that a lot of us black girls wore back in the day where we had kind of like a roller set bang and, you know, a high ponytail and, you know, some hair, um, you know, in the back and, was, you know, would be bumped under. Just the dramatic shift from that hairstyle to this extreme long, you know, wig of ringlets cascading. Um, it's a great symbolism of this the drastic change that's that has happened in Tiffany's life overnight with her mother passing. She no longer, you know, has that protection and nurturing of her mother or is the responsibility of her older sister she now has to you know step out into the adult world very quickly and abruptly so as sabrina plays with the wig's positioning on tiffany's head and she sees the difference tiffany finally she has a moment of actualization where she breaks down in tears and I think she's realizing that her mother is actually gone. Now this is a very powerful performance between the two actresses. I guess I wanted a little hint of this emotion earlier but it's a very small detail. And again I'm just talking about my personal taste but it's not it's nothing major but i can see though what the director was going with in having tiffany's character kind of being whisked into the proposition um of her sister and just kind of going with it out of maybe survival mode but we get that kind of snapping back into reality of the situation that the moment called for. So moving on, we cut to a shot of Tiffany from behind wearing the wig as she walks down the street, headed to her job interview. She has totally jumped into this new character. She's embraced this new character. She's, you know, now kind of warping into Jezebel. She enters a sort of seedy office building and meets the owner of the business, Chuck. They enter his office and he describes the pay as $15 an hour and $1 a minute for private shows. He gives the rules, no nudity in the chat room, no giving phone number, um, personal phone numbers, no penetration because um, she could get a prostitution charge. He lets her know that she's expected to start immediately and then asks her to show him her body. She reluctantly removes her clothes for him and does a little spin where he tells her she's going to have to shave her 
vaginal area and gives a little remark that it's not the 70s. Chuck walks her to a room and introduces her to Vicky, who has on nothing but a bra and panties and is sitting on a couch with a keyboard in her lap facing a camera. Vicky invites Tiffany to sit next to her and she introduces her to the man in the chat. That's when Tiffany comes up with the name Jezebel because real names aren't used. In this shot, we are looking at Jezebel and Vicky from the POV of the webcam where the comments of the men in the chat room can be seen on screen. Comments like show tits or a black girl ass 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 are scrolling up the left side of the frame. The font is very 90s um, ish. Envision the computer, remember the old computers with black screens and green font from back in the day? Only this font, it it isn't green. It's blue, I believe. But Vicky, she schools Tiffany, um, or we'll say Tiffany Jezebel. At this point, I, um, I may use them interchangeably, but they're the same person. Jezebel is Tiffany's alter ego. So Vicky, she's schooling Jezebel and letting her know that she isn't to comply with the commands to from the chat to remove her clothing unless the clients pay for a private show. Jezebel hasn't brought a bikini, so Vicky informs her that she needs to be in her bra and panties. So Jezebel takes off her overalls and sits on the couch in her non-sexy, uh, over-the-belly, you know, over-the-belly button granny panties. And she has on this kind of large, utilitarian white bra. Jezebel, she's sitting next to Vicky with, I guess, a kind of giddy demeanor as Vicky is typing her responses to one of the men, gentleman callers. Cut to, so then we cut to the next scene where they are in another room or I guess this is a makeshift set for a private show where the girls have private shows. Vicky and Jezebel, they're sitting on a mattress which is lying on the floor, directly on the floor with a camera set up directly in front of them. And Vicky, she runs down how to simulate using a dildo. And she's explaining that because of the time delay, the customer won't realize that she isn't actually penetrating and they also can't hear her. So all of the communication is through the chat. So she has to type on the keyboard position on the bed. Remember, this is the 90s. The internet and computers are somewhat in their infancy technology-wise. So the first customer, Doug, logs in and Vicky leaves Jezebel to do her show. 
we cut between a few different camera angles. The main one is shot from the front angle with a fisheye lens to show the gaze of Doug looking at Jezebel through his computer. He types some pleasantries. Then he starts to request to see her come and to see her tits. She types okay and then pretty easily and readily removes her bra and starts to tease him. Now, I like how Numa, the director, chose to show this display of sexuality by a cam girl. We see close-ups of Tiffany's facial expressions and acknowledgments um, as she responds to Doug's typed uh, replies. We then see a wider shot revealing her cupping her breasts, eyes closed, and she kind of, you know, I guess rides around in a sexual fashion. The scene is sexy without showing a whole uncovered breast, which I think many directors, particularly male, would have chosen to show the bare breast in a more graphic nature. And not that I'm against, you know, the depiction of nudity, but it oftentimes is done in a gratuitous manner or for shock value, and it doesn't add substance to a scene. So here, I just like the choices that uh, the director took. So back to the scene, the client, Doug, he types, I'm drinking your chocolate milk, which makes Jezebel giggle. And then we hear what sounds like a door closing. And then the typing shows Doug 101 has logged off. So we get the gist of it that he climaxed. So that was... Tiffany slash Jezebel completing her first or private show. So we cut to Jezebel and Vicky back in the pink room. Vicky reveals she's been working there since the beginning and that Chuck is her brother. So that's a epiphany or reveal that this is actually a family business. That kind of puts a different spin on things for Jezebel, just judging by her expression. Vicky isn't just a fellow webcam girl. She's related to the boss. So some time has lapsed and we cut to Tiffany and Sabrina back at the hotel. I'm sitting on Sabrina's bed. And Tiffany's explaining to her that, you know, there are a lot of nice girls that work with her, but Sabrina schools her that she can't trust any of the girls and they aren't her friends. Dominique, he's listening in um, on the conversation from the couch and he starts to criticize Tiffany and is saying that, you know, she's doing nasty stuff and isn't the nice girl anymore and that their mom would be disappointed. 
So Sabrina, you know, she responds that instead of criticizing, he should be out looking for a job instead of drinking all day. And then Dave, he chimes in saying that they actually both applied for jobs at the casino. So there are two interesting shots where Sabrina and Tiffany are seated on the couch talking about how they're going to get money to bury their mother. The camera is first positioned on a tight side shot of Tiffany where the focus is pulled in on her, which visually leaves Sabrina out of focus next to her. We cut to the reverse angle where the camera is now shooting a close profile shot of Sabrina. Focus is now pulled to where Tiffany is slightly out of focus. When Tiffany responds asking who's going to pay for the funeral, the DP keeps, or the director of photography keeps the camera angle and adjusts focus to Tiffany as she explains she's going to get a check soon and you know she can give some money. There's a couple cuts um, back and forth using this technique. I think it was a good way to not have too much of a talking head scene. That's where you have the actors speaking dialogue with no action. And so this is a way to break up the monotony of the scene. And I love when I see black films with directing decisions like this because They are thoughtful of the viewer and it shows an awareness of the pacing of the scene. So this is definitely a film and particularly this scene where a new filmmaker or a student would learn a lot from going frame by frame and just studying each shot. Because I can say when I was a film student way, way, way back in the day, that was a mistake I made of just having a scene that, you know, was very long and just had two characters sitting in one place and just had kind of like one camera angle and they're just talking where you have just two talking heads and not a lot of action. The scene can be very boring. So... Again, the shot choices that the director takes for this particular scene are very good examples of what you should do. Okay, but getting back to the film. So to kind of break up the somberness of the mood, Sabrina lets Tiffany choose through a goodie bag of things that some of her phone clients have sent to her P.O. box. Tiffany, she finds a sexy bikini that, you know, Sabrina gives to her. Sabrina also gives her some money to go buy her own sex toy to use on the job so she doesn't have to share with the other girls. She tells her she can pay her back when she gets paid. And not to be facetious, but details like this are educational because you don't think that girls would have to, or these women would have to share sex toys. And I think this is a very authentic detail that lends to the realness of 
the film. So moving on, we cut to a scene where we have a handheld camera shot of Tiffany walking down a street in Vegas. It starts from behind her as she walks with headphones and a Walkman. Remember those? Then we cut, there's a cut to a shot of Tiffany walking towards the camera. I like the juxtaposition of the Vegas skyline behind her and the traffic flowing as she's walking in her own world. I believe the song playing over the scene is um, entitled Holding Me Back by Deja Marie. I tried to do a little research on the film score or soundtrack and I found that on SoundCloud. And Deja Marie is credited for the film's music along with Dennis Dortch. I think that's how he pronounced his last name, being credited as the music supervisor for this film. And that was a cool little surprise to see Dennis Dortch working in that capacity as the music uh, supervisor because I've only known him as being one of the founders of Black and Sexy TV. So, you know, it's just cool to see filmmakers being multifaceted in that way. But anyways, this was a very good choice of song placement for this scene. It reflects this kind of retrospective space that the character is in at this point. She's walking with a kind of, I guess, sense of newfound freedom or just self-awareness. And I'm a walk down the street with headphones kind of person myself. I love that feeling of just getting lost in the music as you're strolling along in your own world. It's like you're in your own music video and that's kind of the feeling this scene gives me for Tiffany slash Jezebel. Because at this point, it seems like she's adopting her alter ego more. She's stepping into that role. She's slowly warping or evolving into her new persona. So Tiffany, she slows down as she approaches her destination and we cut to a quick shot of Deja Vu Adult Emporium uh, store sign. The camera follows her into the store entrance. Then next we get a shot of her walking down the street in front of the store with a bag of goodies. Just enough coverage. We don't have to see her inside of the store milling around. And I think I read that this film was shot in 9 to 10 days with a very small budget. And it's refreshing to see how smart the filmmaker was to know how to get just the exact amount of coverage to tell the full story. She probably had permission to shoot outside of the store or she could have, you know, shot that. Uh, gorilla style but she didn't have to bother with shooting inside of the store 
and just worrying about the logistics of that. I can say from my own experience in film school, there were times when I didn't have a storyboard or a well-fleshed out shot list and wound up coming up short when I was in the editing phase because I didn't think about certain cover shots that um, would have been easy to get. And back then I was shooting on 16 millimeter film, so it was just too expensive um, and impractical to try and reshoot or do pickup shots. So again, this very quick scene, it's a good example for those who are on a budget or on a short shooting schedule instead of having to get permission to shoot inside of a store, retail store, which can be hard if they actually have customers, depending on when you wanna shoot. This is a good option to just show your character walking in to the establishment, and then you just get some good cover shots on the outside of the establishment, so you can just establish the location, and then you show their aftermath. Here, she's walking out with the bag so you, you you can already put it in your mind that she went in there and purchased something. The next couple of scenes we see are of Jezebel becoming fully immersed and comfortable as a webcam girl. We see her in a session with another woman spanking and simulating a kiss with her. She shows, the other woman shows how to position their heads to where their hair covers just enough so that they aren't really kissing, but it gives the illusion. So that was very interesting to see that. I feel like we get a lot of behind the scenes with this film. You know, we're let into this world of adult entertainment and we get to see the tricks of the trade. So the next scene we see there's been a time lapse and the family is dressed in black in their living room. It's the day of their mother's funeral. We follow them as they take the bus, the four of them. So it's Tiffany, Sabrina, Juju, and Dominique. They walk hand in hand once they get to their stop. We don't get an actual funeral scene, but that's enough of the symbolism of closure that is needed. So again, good way to represent this funeral without actually having to go through the logistics of shooting, doing an actual funeral scene or, you know, shooting at a mortuary or funeral home. So cut to Later, back at home, Sabrina, she's lying in bed as Dave is dressed in his work uniform and he's chugging a beer after he's gotten off of his work shift. He asks about the funeral, you know, asks her if she's going to go to work that day or do some work that day. And Sabrina lets him know that she's, you know, going to take the day off. So he takes this as a cue 
to lie down next to her, you know, cozy up. And they begin to role play with him acting as one of her phone sex callers. So she makes the comment for him to please dip in, I guess, dip into her chocolate a couple times before she says time's up and tells him to go, you know, handle himself in the bathroom. She doesn't want to have sex with her siblings in the next room. So he's, of course, disappointed and says that he thought the sister was going to move out once she got a job. But again, this is interesting because he doesn't mention the brother who is actually in the front room and can hear them as they speak. And he calls out good night from the front room after he tells Sabrina good night Sabrina winds up replying to him or she says something like slave Dave so see this is this was the the verification that I needed regarding the dynamic of their relationship I got the sense that there was some I don't know I guess odd interracial forbidden slave play situation going on in their relationship she's definitely not the conventional depiction of a black woman in film she's a bit on the off-beaten path dealing with a white man who may have a fetish for her and possibly for her brother but you know for some reason he can't stand her sister which probably is because he can't have her. So, you know, that's just a very interesting character nuance, I will say. So cut to Jezebel in her webcam room. She has on pink lace underwear, very sexy, and more put together than she was on her first day. As she starts to type with her customer, she confides that she was at a funeral for her mom. He actually comforts her as she's, uh, you know, on the verge of crying. The conversation turns as she tells him he's sweet and he lets her know that he's not so sweet because he has a wife and kids, but yet he's on the webcam with her. So, you know, they connect and he agrees not to do any more private shows with anyone else but her. She then pulls out some nail polish and slowly paints her toes. We get seductive shots of her running her hands with long red fingernails all over her body. She's a pro now. She's now one of the cam girls who can drag out a customer for more than a couple minutes. She can drag a show out for more than a couple minutes. As she finishes her show, the panting of a man can be heard and zipping of his pants. This, it throws you off as a viewer when you realize or you remember that there's not supposed to be any sound during these shows because again, it's the 90s and that technology hasn't been developed yet. So that's kind of like, I guess, would be like a little Easter egg. But you kind of have to like, you may or may not pick up on it right then and there. But that's something that's kind of thrown out there that'll make sense a little bit later. 
we cut to Jezebel and Sam, who is another cam girl, back in the pink room, and they are chatting with customers. She assures the guys that she doesn't like big black penises, but that she prefers small white penises. A customer requests a private show with her, and she leaves out. So that's a little interesting into the racial dynamics in the adult and entertainment industry. A time lapse occurs, and Jezebel, Sam, and Vicky are in the pink room interacting with customers. One of the clients posts, who is the N-word bitch? And Jezebel gets angry. The other girls try to convince her that she's overreacting and that they are called names as well. But Jezebel, she's not having it. She gets up and leaves the live, the live chat, and requests that Chuck ban the customer. However, Chuck tells her that the customers, all the customers are not like Bobby, who's her kind of routine client. Jezebel becomes self-conscious as she realizes that he's monitoring their chats. Chuck tells her that, of course, he monitors her chats. But I think to calm the situation down, he gives her a paycheck and lets her go home for the day. Later on, Chucky introduces Jezebel to Summer and Skye, who are actual porn stars. They encourage her to join them in their line of work, and I guess they come across as pretty harmless and unassuming at the time. We can see here that this is where Chuck seems to be trying to lure Jezebel into a more deeper and seedier part of the adult entertainment business. We have another scene where Vicky grills Jezebel about her shows with Bobby and warns her about penetration because she doesn't want, you know, to get a prostitution charge. Meanwhile, Jezzy and Bobby are getting to know each other more where he asks her for her P.O. box because he wants to send her something. There's then a scene where Jezebel comes home and her sister's boyfriend, Dave, he's inappropriate with her, asking her questions, very specific questions about her job and, you know, what she does there. Before things can go on any further, Sabrina comes home and interrupts their exchange. We cut to another day in the office and Summer and Sky. Remember that the porn stars are talking to Jezebel and they try to lure her to work for them and they offer her $20 an hour because they're starting their own business, but it's a secret. No one knows about it yet. We then cut to a scene where Sabrina and Jezebel are in their kitchen back at the apartment. Sabrina lets her know that that Jezebel actually got a package delivered to her P.O. box. Jezebel opens the box and reveals these thigh-high black pleather stiletto boots with a note from Bobby. 
asking to see her in them when um, he's in Vegas. As Jezebel poses in the bathroom door, she's standing in the frame with the boots on, Sabrina kind of subtly tells her that it's time for her to get her own P.O. box and her own place. Jezebel looks a bit hurt and worried, you know. She doesn't think she'll be able to afford her own weekly uh, room there. And she pushes back to Sabrina and asks, you know, questions why two grown men, Dave and Dominique, they can stay, but she has to leave. And Sabrina, she says that Dave is her boyfriend and Dominique just started working a minimum wage job. So I guess he'll be able to start to pitch in. So Jezebel, she takes the hint and leaves to go get her own weekly unit, even though Sabrina tells her she doesn't have to go right now. But Jezebel, she doesn't want to be there when Dave comes back. And this is an interesting scene because Sabrina mentions that now Jezebel has her own slave boy, referring to the fact that she has a man sending her gifts. So I guess, hmm, maybe the slave reference is more about power and not race. But it also seems like she's aware of her boyfriend Dave's interest in her younger sister. So instead of checking him, she's putting her sister out. So that's an interesting choice because I know there are many women who would relate to Sabrina's point of view, as well as many who would empathize with Tiffany or Jezebel's perspective. But you know, this is an example of a woman who probably, who was probably thrown to the wolves to provide for herself, you know, maybe at a young age. And either because of insecurity or messages from society feels like she needs to have the company of a man, whether he is a provider or not. And she seems to feel the need to baby her grown brother while on the other hand adultifying her younger sister who seems to be barely of age we don't get to know tiffany's exact age but it seems like she's like just out of high school if i had to guess and you know this is a phenomenon i think a lot of black women can identify with in our community all too well cut to tiffany in a webcam session with bobby she writes her number on a sheet of paper and she flashes it to him on the camera which again remember that's one of the things that are against the rules moving forward in time we cut to Jezebel walking into her new single unit. The camera follows her and we get quick cuts of her in each area, the bedroom, the bathroom, kitchen. She's inspecting and being delighted in her new space. 
She's interrupted by the phone ringing. It's her client, Bobby. He apologizes for booking another girl. He didn't want anyone to suspect anything since he sent her those boots. So he doesn't want to look like he's showing favoritism. She tells him he needs to prove he's sorry and hangs up the phone on him. So Jezebel has cut out the middleman of her job and has direct communication with her best paying customer, her most loyal customer. So I would say that's smart on her behalf. So we see Chuck has been monitoring Jezebel's webcam sessions with Bobby on his computer. He confronts Jezebel and winds up firing her. Jobless, Jezebel calls Summer and Skye and tells them that she'd like to take them up on their offer. Back at her hotel room, Jezebel gets a call from Bobby. He talks about seeing her in person and also assures her that he won't do any shows with anyone else. She lets him know that she expects for him to send her money for her shows at $5.95 a minute times 90 minutes, which equals $535.50. To which he agrees. He asks, may I go now? And she says, yes, you are dismissed. So she's in control now. She hangs up the phone and lets out a, a squeal of delight, but then the camera lingers on her as she starts to reflect with a look of maybe trouble or deep contemplation as she pulls off her wig and removes her earrings. She pulls off her wig cap and reveals her natural hair. This seems to be a signaling that she's off of work mode now. She's no longer Jezebel, but back to being Tiffany. Cut to Tiffany. She's sitting at a table in Sabrina's suite and they're having pizza. She reveals that she got fired from her webcam job and she took a job with the porn stars. Sabrina warns her that just because they are women doesn't mean that they will be easier to work with. And she lets her know that she can actually move back in. But Tiffany tells her that she'll be fine financially. And to that, Sabrina warns her and, you know, says she hopes Bobby is worth her leaving her job and that she hopes she can pay the weekly rent because, you know, it comes up really fast. I guess that combo got to Tiffany because we cut to her in Chuck's, back in Chuck's office with Vicky, who asks her, they both ask her to come back to work. After some pushback, Chuck agrees to pay her $20 an hour and agrees to ban customers who use the N-word after first giving them a warning. He claims it's because of free speech. He doesn't want to outright ban them. The next scene is Tiffany in the bathroom. She's dressed in a sexy black dress as Sabrina applies fake nails to her fingers. 
Sabrina is giving her tips for her date with Bobby and um, reminding her on how to be a lady. There is a cut to a shot where the camera is positioned in front of Tiffany as she sits while Sabrina places her wig on her head. It's the same as the first time um, she did it for her. Tiffany, she gets emotional and cries and says that she's scared. Sabrina reassures her and, you know, shushes her not to cry so she doesn't mess up her mascara. We end on a side close-up shot of Tiffany slash Jezebel and she raises her head and gains her composure. The camera raises slightly to show Sabrina rest her chin on Tiffany's head and assures her that you know it's a date and that she's Jezebel not Tiffany. The written and directed by Numa Perrier credit appears and the song Holding Me Back plays again and that is the end of the film. That was a powerful ending for me. It's one of those film endings where you see the protagonist has a full circle moment and even though the film is ending it feels like it's going to continue because the character is moving onto a new stage in life and that story is just beginning. So there are many questions. Will Bobby be her knight in shining armor? Or will he be a creep? Will he even show up? Will, you know, Tiffany slash Jezebel have her pretty woman moment? Or will she become a more cynical adult entertainment professional you know this this last scene it leaves a lot for the imagination but in a good way because the story sticks with you as you ponder those things so it gives you i guess you know what they say food for thought so yeah i think that wraps up my thoughts for this blase blog film chat I feel like I went extra deep with this one because there was just so many special details I wanted to point out. Numa Perrier, like I mentioned before, represents exciting black filmmaking to me. When I read think pieces asking about whether we are in a black renaissance within film and television, I look to directors such as Numa because she represents avant-garde filmmaking. There's not many black art house type films that get mainstream exposure. So I'm glad that Jezebel was one that broke through a bit. Very, very refreshing. So with that being said, I'd like to thank you all for tuning into another Blase Blah film chat. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time. <laughs>